You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Art, Aristotle, and Anthony Hopkins. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Sean Chandler, and you're listening to Your Program Is Your Ticket, a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. Today's guest is Artistic Director Jerome Davis of Burning Coal Theater Company. Artistic Director Davis is part of my Theater is for Everyone series, where I'm interviewing theater artists outside of the major locales and influences to give them a chance to be heard, discuss their triumphs, challenges, and misconceptions. Based in Raleigh, North Carolina, Burning Coal Theater Company produces literate, visceral, affecting theater that is experienced, not simply seen. Keep in mind that our interviews are recorded at different times to optimize schedules, just in case the audio sounds different. I'm super excited, so let's bring them on. Hi, Jerome, and welcome to Your Program is Your Ticket. Good to see you today. Oh, thank you. It's great to see you. I'm uh, super excited that you're on the show. Uh, I'm very, very much looking forward to speaking with you about your theater company. Thank you. Thanks oh, so much. you're welcome. Well, let's start by having you uh, introduce yourselves to our listeners and uh, tell us about your background and where you're from and uh, school or or anything like that. Sure. Um, uh, happy to do that. Uh, um, uh, I'm Jerome Davis. Jerry, Jerry is fine. Uh, I'm the artistic director, the founding artistic director of Burning Coal Theater Company in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, my wife, Simi Kastner, and I founded the company back in the 90s. Um, we, uh, we met in New York City where we'd both been living uh, separately and then together for about a dozen years. And, um, and she had had an interest in theater as a young person, particularly in uh, set design. Um, she wanted to study that, but she found that back, um, she, she likes to say back before the earth cooled, uh, back in the seventies, um, uh, that a lot of the, um, educational, um, facilities, uh, including the one that she was enrolled in didn't, um, want women working in that field uh, and were very clear with her that they did not think that was appropriate for her. And, and they basically kind of ran her out of the business. Uh, so she went uh, to American University in D.C. where her mother was working as a, a administrative assistant there to one of the deans. And so she was able to get free tuition. But she had been told that American University had a very good painting program. So she got a degree in computer science and another degree in painting, thinking, you know, again, back in the 70s, that those two fields would never 
uh, interrelate in any way. And uh, flash forward 45 years and, and uh, the computer revolution and uh, the digital age and now uh, having a degree as a painter is considered a great uh, boon in the business that she works in. So she's um, the one who makes all the money in our family. And, uh, but she also has a love for theater and probably never would have um, gone back to it had we not bumped into each other. Uh, one uh, New Year's Day morning uh, in uh, Manhattan. And uh, shortly afterward, I popped the question, uh, do you want to go south and help me start a theater? And she said yes, to my astonishment. And we, uh, you know, and we did. Uh, and, and we've been here for 25 years now. Oh, that's outstanding. Um, I, I think it's so, I don't know, theater sort of has a weird educational landing spot. And I don't know why. I remember I had a friend, this is back uh, probably a couple decades, maybe 25 years ago, who was going to uh, Cal State Fullerton in California, some from Southern sure. California. Yeah. And um, he wanted to be a director and he actually had to go in and design his own directing program. I, it's just, it's crazy. And then to hear about this, what your wife went through. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, I hope that we've come a long way. I really do. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. I think there's been a huge, I mean, I think she would basically own the university now. Right. Somebody said to her, one, one of the teachers said to her, a, a woman can't drive a nail as well as a man. How could you possibly make an A in my class? And proceeded to give her a B, even though she aced every test, showed up to every class and did every project on time. And, and he gave her a B, you know, and um, today, if you did that, you'd, uh, you'd be out pretty quick but uh, so i do think we've come a long way uh, about that uh, the the educational component uh, dates back at least to aristotle you know who said mm-hmm. um art is something that entertains while educating um and and so if you're making art you are by definition involved in education uh, at least by aristotle's terms uh, as well as the entertainment component to it okay I'm writing that down because I love that quote from Aristotle. He was a pretty smart guy, it turns <laughs> out. But, uh, and then I didn't answer your question at all. I realize I'm originally from Tennessee, um, uh, from Middle Tennessee. Um, it came from a par- fairly poor family. I was the first person in the, in, in our family in the 20th century, uh, to, to graduate from college, for instance. Um, my two brothers, uh, followed me, uh, in that, pursued and and both are theater people too um my twin brother is a uh, high school drama teacher in Tennessee and my younger brother is a college uh, drama professor in Kentucky so so we're slowly taking over the southeastern united states <laughs> at least from a theatrical standpoint right yeah yeah and then I moved to New York when I was in my early 20s. And, uh, you know, I spent a, a, about 11 or 12 years working as a, um, a an actor first. You know, that's, I mean, most mostly when you go to New York, you want to be an actor if you're in the theater. But eventually I began to realize that I also was interested in directing. And, and you know, I, I always tell the story when I was a kid, uh, most most kids, uh, in, when they get bored in class, you know, they they doodle geometric patterns around the edges of their paper or something. I was doodling seasons. You know, I was uh, I was saying, uh, what what if we put Richard the third there instead? What would that do? You know, I'm getting very excited about that kind of thing. And, and so that was probably uh, I should have seen that red flag waving saying uh, you're going to be an artistic director someday. 
<laughs> but the, you know, so anyway, so got to New York, met my wife, um, did a lot, a lot of work in regional theaters, not a lot, but enough, you know, to, to call myself an actor. And, and then, uh, of course, worked a little bit in Manhattan as well. And, uh, um, and, you know, met some very interesting people uh, while I was there and s- some of whom have continued and are, and are kind of the foundation or, or building blocks of our, of our theater company here. Wow, that's great. Um, so let's, let's talk about your, your theater company. Sure. Tell us about it. Tell us about Burning Coal Theater Company, please. Well, it's, um, you know, it's a small uh, company. Um, we we were an itinerant company for the first, uh, I think, eleven years that we were here in Raleigh. We bounced around, uh, finding spaces, uh, opening spaces. There, there's a theater now called the Kennedy Theater in downtown uh, Raleigh that had been a rehearsal room and storage space in the big performing arts center, and we talked the. Um, the city into letting us use it as a, as our home base for a while. And, and the result is that they put a bunch of money in eventually after we left, of course, but they put a bunch of money into redoing it and turning it into a performance space. So we built that one. Um, we once performed in a, in a tire shop, a place where you'd go to get your tires repaired. Uh, um, did a uh, John Guare play um, there. Um, and, um, you know, like one does, you know. Of course, yes. <laughs> uh, but eventually we found uh, found our own space. Uh, I, I, you know, I think the critical element has been, um, for us, has been the mission statement. And, and when, I, when I started here, I, I would never have thought that was the case. You know, I thought that was just, frankly, um, BS, you know, that you put on a grant to make yourself sound more highfalutin than, you know, but basically we're just trying to do plays. But what I found over the years is that our mission really, because it's very solid and very, very um, clear, I think, um, you know, I've seen some mission statements that say things like we want to save the world or change the world or something. And I'm like, OK, uh, how are you going to pull that off? Uh, but um, but ours, I think, is has has been very clear and very simple and direct. And so um, uh, we we are able to follow it. You know, we're able to look at it in the context of a play that might be under consideration um, and um, and then go from there. Um and so, um, so I think the mission statement is critical. Our mission is literate, visceral, and affecting theater. And each of those words has a specific meaning in, in our minds. Um, but, um, the other thing that I was certain about, I, I had the good fortune of working when I was acting in New York. Uh, I'm an equity actor and, and, and I got a, a season at uh, Trinity Rep in Providence. Um, just out of a blind kettle call, you know, I didn't have an agent at the time and, and, uh, I went up there to Providence. I couldn't get any of my friends to go with me uh, because they kept saying, Providence, why would you want to work there? Um, and, and I knew who Adrian Hall was, you know, and I knew their company's history. I knew that Adrian had won the first, um, outstanding regional theater Tony award and that he had taken over the Dallas theater center and run both of them simultaneously for six years. In other words, he was a madman. Uh, and I knew, I knew he had recently left the company. Um, they brought Ann Bogart in for a year after that. And that ended disastrously. And, and then they brought Richard Jenkins and, you know, the, the, who most of us know now as a film actor, Oh, yeah. um, Richard was the artistic director for four years there, and he'd been in their company 
along with these great, great actors like Peter Garrity and Dan Von Bargen, um, rest in peace, um, just amazing uh, people. Um, and so I said, well, hell, if I have any chance of getting into that company, I'm going to rent a car and drive up to Providence, you know, and, and audition. And I did. There were about 300 people there, and I got got cast. I was the guy that Richard hired out of um, out of that cattle call for the season and got to work with some amazing directors and actors and and, but also, I got to be in their space. You know, um, I don't know how much you want to hear about about this, but um, so okay. Um, uh, Eugene Lee uh, was the house is the house designer there. Um, most people know Eugene's work. He, he did the original Sweeney Todd on Broadway. Um, he did Wicked uh, more recently. He does all the Saturday Night Live sets. He's one of a couple of house designers on Saturday Night Live. He's a, a, like Adrian, a bit of a madman. And he, his idea of theater is, you know, the minute you step in the building, you're in the world of the play. And Adrian, Adrian Hall's uh, mo- motif was, no, no, it's just two guys sitting at a table talking. That's all I need. And somehow the two of them uh, came together, Eugene just out of RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, and Adrian having been brought in to turn this community theater, which is what it was back in the 60s, into a professional company. And the two of them met, not unlike, I think, you know, Lennon and McCartney or somebody like that, and they had such different values, but but together they created a house style that led to the creation of their performing space that they have two but the big one the one upstairs is is just an extraordinary place to watch a play and it's uh, almost always I mean, it's flexible, but it's almost always done either in the round or in thrust uh, configuration. And the the value of that was something that was very important to me. The experience of performing on that stage in that room um, with the audience wrapped around me and and, and um, was something that I had n- never really fully understood before. Um this was back in the early 90s before the, you know, Shakespeare's Globe was reopened and things like that. And I think people had sort of gotten out of – it had gone out of fashion to to do um, that kind of theater. Everything was proscenium. Um, and um, – but, but if you go back in history, um, almost everything was done like that up until – you know, around the 1800s when we moved indoors, you know, we started uh, uh, doing performances indoors. Um, if you think about the, the the Greek amphitheaters, you know, the audience is wrapped, not fully, but to some degree wrapped around the stage. Certainly uh, the Globe and the Rose and all those Elizabethan theaters, um, you know, when they would go out on the road with their wagons, uh, you know, and perform in the countryside. The, the town would not all sit on one end of the uh, yard and look at the stage. They would wrap around the stage, you know, and and that's, um, uh, you know, the way theater was done for thousands of years up until the last couple of hundred years. And, and so people think today that the proscenium is the traditional way of doing theater, but in fact, it's the, it's the Johnny come lately, you know. So I wanted that to be a part of our space once we got our space and I understood the value of a, of a space with an identity, you know, with a, with a, a texture and a life and, um, uh, you know, a character. Uh, and, and we got really, really lucky when we uh, got here, we were told, uh, look at this old building, the Murphy school. Um, and, um, 
we we uh, heard that it was full of asbestos that other companies had looked at it um, but i happened to know that it was built in 1908 um, which was before there was anything called asbestos, you know, and so I kept thinking maybe maybe it's not won't be so bad. Uh, let's try it, and and we did. We were able to uh, with a with a at that time our budget was only about three hundred thousand dollars, and we were able to save a, a, or raise a million and a half, which is five times our annual budget, um, and, and about that much again in in kind contributions. Uh, from people here in the community in order to renovate this very small space and turn it into what I think is the most dynamic theater space in um, in North Carolina, honestly. Wow. Uh, I, I I truly believe that it it's uh, smaller, more independent uh, theater companies and productions that have uh, brought back those uh, and, 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 and highlighted those yeah. types of stages, uh, thrust stages and, and theater in the round. And, uh, upon discovering that, I think it's, it's exciting to people who aren't necessarily, you know, quote unquote theater people. They, they show up and it's, it's like, wow, they're, they're right there and they're all over the place. And, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very, very intriguing. I'm I trying had to a, think. A woman said to me once after a performance, she came up and said, it was like I was in the room with them. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. You were, you were in the room with them. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I think the only uh, type of theater we have like that in New York is Circle in the Square. Yeah, yeah, I'm which pretty- is a problematic space in, in yeah. a lot of ways, but uh, uh, because it's so darn, darn long. But but I've seen some great stuff there over the years. Uh, oh sure, yeah. That's what that's one of my very very favorite theaters. And, and uh, the classic stage company down on the Lower East Side is, is, has got a, a thrust stage too, uh, unless it's been changed recently. That's that's a terrific space, I think. Um, classic stage. Oh yeah, yeah. The the off and off off Broadway uh, spaces. Yeah. Um, they they have incredible stages. I think that a small stage uh, and and a limited situation like that is a huge asset to a production because, and I've said this many, many times, when you feel like you're limited is when I believe you get the most creative. Yeah. You know, some people, some people come up with genius ideas uh, to, to compensate for limitations. And they're, you know, sometimes I'm blown away by it. Like, wow, how did they figure that out? And, and 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 why and what led them to that and it was somebody who had to think a little bit harder about uh the idea than just you know throwing something big up on stage and putting a bunch of money into it yeah yeah <laughs> there's a great uh, there's a great story about that that I, that I absolutely love um uh, about peter hall you know who was running the national theater um, and, uh, Peter Schaffer, uh, who wrote Amadeus had written his, his first big play was called The Royal Hunt of the Sun. And he gave it to, to Peter Hall to read. And a couple of weeks later, Hall called him into his office. And there's a stage direction in, in The Royal Hunt of the Sun that says they cross the Andes. And, um, and Schaffer walked in and he said, Peter, Peter, before you say anything, I just want to say, if you want me to cut that stage direction, I will. And, and Hall said, if you cut that stage direction, I won't do it. Mm. And I thought, that's, that's an artistic director. You know, that's somebody who, who understands the, the value of what you're talking about of creativity and imagination and that in the theater, 
you know, we we don't come there to have everything explicitly told to us. We come there to to imagine uh, and to to really to be a part of the story. And and no no better way to do that, I think, than than wrapping yourselves around the, the actors. And so you're not. It isn't just that you're watching the actors uh, from close up. I mean, that's part of it. But you're also watching your neighbors watch the actors too. And so there's a community a conversation going on when you're in a thrust uh, configuration or an in the round configuration that I think isn't, uh, frankly, isn't possible uh, in a proscenium stage. Wow, I. As a writer, I usually explain because I, I write plays and I write uh, film and TV scripts, but mm-hmm. I usually explain it this way. With a film, you're pretty much spoon feeding the audience everything that they need to know. And you could do it artistically and, and, um, you know, subtly, uh, there, there's a certain art to that. But with a play, it's almost like you're presenting a puzzle to the audience. Mm-hmm. That they they need to figure who is that and why is that person? I mean, I think if you did that sort of thing, if you spoon fed people during a play, it's just not going to be that effective. I mean, they're in front of you and they need to become engaged, so you have to sort of uh, tickle their minds a little bit. There's I, a there's a great uh, YouTube uh, one of those um, I think uh, TED talks that Oscar Eustace did a few years ago. I don't know if yeah. you've seen that one where he talks about the fact that. Theater as we know it, uh, you know, uh, Thespis, when he stepped out and became the first actor, that, that that happened in the same city in the same decade as democracy, as the idea of democracy um, was was created that, that we know, you know, in the Western world, at least. Um, and he talks about it. Uh, Oscar Eustace says, you know, before that, everything had been directed toward the audience. And so the audience was being lectured. And there's a relationship between the lecturer and the lecturee. And then Eustace says, but what if I do this? And then he turns his head sideways, uh, like he's talking to another actor. And he says, now I'm, I'm not lecturing to you. Now you have the control because you, now you're watching me and, and judging me and assessing me and determine whether what I'm saying makes sense to you or not. And, and that's what democracy is really. It's, um, it's a group of people working out among themselves what they think is is right and um, and true and, and uh, fair. Uh, and so I, I think Oscar Eustace is a very bright man. He also ran Trinity Rep for a while after I after I left. Uh, there's some kind of weird thing going on in Providence, but um, but but the idea that uh, that theater and democracy are interrelated is not a far fetched idea. I think at all. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah. Is he still at the public? I don't know. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he sure yeah. is. Yeah, he's yeah, I, I I agree. Can we go back to Richard Jenkins? I have to say, I love that guy. I think yeah. he is such a dynamite actor. He's just he's amazing. Um I remember him first sort of like registering to me 
although I'm sure he did work way before that, in Six Feet Under, which is a terrific show, and he was great. Yeah. He played the father. Yeah. And then most recently, um, The Humans. I thought he was outstanding. He he was in the, the film version of The Humans. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have to say, I didn't really connect very much to the play version, but I loved the film version, and, and it just the the acting was dynamite, uh, starting with him. I have to see it. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. But, um, you know, Richard uh, came out of Indiana, uh, I think Indiana University back in the 60s. And he was um, he he went to Providence and he was one of the actors that Adrian brought in. Um, there's an interesting story about that. They, they were doing a, a play. Uh, called The Suicide, which is a, a farce by the Russian writer Erdman. Um, and uh, Richard was playing the lead in it. It's a comedy about a, a farce about a, a guy who's despondent and, and tells everybody he's about to kill himself. And they start selling advertising for the event. And, and he finds that he, he's now too rich to die. So he has to fake his suicide. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, hilarity ensues, but Richard did this show. Um, and I think it was variety, if I'm not mistaken. It was one of those big, um, West Coast um, arts uh, mag- magazines uh, sent a reviewer to see it for I think because they had brought in a Russian director to direct it some you know hotshot Russian director probably from the Moscow Art Theater or something and this uh, writer wrote a review and he said and this was back in the seventies he said I'm I'm convinced having seen this play that Richard Jenkins is the best actor in America today <laughs> which is quite quite a statement you know but Richard um, you know loved theater and and uh, so he he stayed with that company for decades uh, and only finally when I was there he was auditioning for uh, Silence of the Lambs um, and he didn't get it he was down to two people uh, and he was playing the one of the FBI guys you know and, and he didn't get it and he was pretty despondent you know he thought oh my I'll never get an, a role you know I'm he thought he wasn't good enough which of course is absurd but I think Anthony Heald got that role and um anyway uh richard is a just a fantastic person too um when i came up there he invited me to stay in his house with him i didn't take him up on it i i should have i wish i had now but uh but he you know i was gonna he said you know if you don't want to get an apartment you can just stay at our place you know and i, I was like well i, I don't want to put you out you know a southern boy you know trying to be polite i should have said hell yes i'll stay <laughs> stay in your house richard but uh, anyway he's he's a good guy he's as good a guy as he is uh, an actor i think uh, I, that character's name is Doctor Chilton. I just I fucking love the science. They play it all the time out here now on A and E. I mean, yeah. probably about a good two months before uh, Halloween, they play it. They play it over the summer, yeah. and I, I will watch it with commercials and you know bleeping and stuff every single time. I love that movie. I'm, I'm, love, on the, I, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I've seen oh. it once, and I ain't ever going back to that baby again. <laughs> I loved it, but but I'm not going to put myself through that again. Oh, anyway, sorry. anyway, I would have loved to have seen him play uh, Doctor Chilton um, yeah. Yeah. opposite uh, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. I love Jodie Foster; I'm a huge oh, yeah. fan. Of her. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's great. Um, tell us in detail about the Murphy school, like give us its, its full history and, and how you got involved and how it, where it is now. And sure. 
Um, well, the location is important. It's uh, I like to say it's two blocks from the governor's mansion and two blocks from the Krispy Kreme. So, um, so almost everybody knows where at least one of those places <laughs> is, uh, you know, so it's easy to direct people to, to it. Um, but, um, it, it's also right on the border of what has historically been the African American section of Raleigh, uh, you know, in a downtown Southeast Raleigh. Um, and, and there's about five colleges that, that are within walking distance of the theater, uh, including two historically black colleges, Shaw and St. Augustine's. Um, and so um, it's accessible. You know, it, it is uh, accessible. There's a big parking lot outside a state employee's parking lot um, that's free after 5 p.m. and on weekends. So we don't have to worry about people paying for parking. If you're paying $85 a ticket at the big performing arts space downtown, a $5 parking cost is not that big a deal but if you're paying 15 or 20 dollars for a ticket like it is for us then it's a it's a big percentage of you know what's what you're going to be paying that evening and so we got lucky in that regard um the, the building's history is fascinating it, it was an elementary school it's sort of a, a u shape um and the theater is one leg of the u so it's one about one third of the building um, the the other two thirds were the classrooms, um, which were converted into low income senior housing back in the nineteen nineties, uh, I think it was. But it was the event that happened here at the Murphy School in in the auditorium in the summer of nineteen sixty that makes the building um, historically important and and perhaps the most important building in the city, um, and that is that the the city school board met. Uh, in the summer of 1960 and voted to begin the desegregation of the Raleigh school system. So there was a, 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 a hugely important historical event. And in fact, the first African-American student to attend a, uh, up to that point, white school in Raleigh was a seven-year-old named Bill Campbell, um, who went on to become the mayor of Atlanta. He served two terms as the mayor of Atlanta. His brother, Ralph, was the state auditor here in North Carolina for years, and his family had been uh, highly involved in the NAACP and other, um, you know, political organizations. So um, it's fascinating. You know, we closed our first season here with a play that we commissioned and did ourselves about that history and all of the political machinations that went on and, and all of the kind of slightly terrible, well, more than slightly, the terrible things that, that this family and another family, the Holt family, um, had to deal with in trying to get their sons into into a white school in, in Raleigh. Um, I'll give you one example. There was a man, he was still alive at the time, and so we were able to interview him. He's since passed on, but he, he ran a um, bail bond uh, company in downtown Raleigh that was you know, primarily used by the African-American community. There were lots of marches and protests and street, you know, activities going on, and he didn't participate in them. And he told us, you know, he was in his 80s at the time that he that he had felt guilty ever since then for not participating in those things. And everybody told him, and I think rightfully so, you've got to stay here. You know, we need you here in the bail bond place because they're going to arrest us and um, and we're going to need you to bail us out, to help us get bailed out. And, and he understood that intellectually, but emotionally he felt guilt about it, about not having got out on the street uh, with the others. Um, 
And so that those kinds of stories were woven into the play that we did. Uh, a, a local playwright named Ian Finley, um, who's really fantastic, um, uh, holds a master's in playwriting from NYU and is just a brilliant mind. Uh, he he wrote the play um, and we did it here and it was um, it was very emotional and um, and I think a darn good piece of theater, too, if I may if I may say. So anyway, uh, yeah, the the building has, uh, you know, so we raised the money. It's set for about 30, 32 years, I think, uh, after it closed down in the 1970s. It just sat here falling apart. There were pigeons in here and, you know, squirrels and stuff like that and the holes in the floor, broken windows. And there was no HVAC, no electricity, no plumbing, no nothing. We had to put it all in. Uh, and we, I wanted to get a balcony in the space. I wanted um a balcony on three sides, and and we did get that. Uh, we snuck it in one inch under code. Uh, you know, the building with the ceilings about twenty feet high, and if it had been nineteen feet uh, eleven inches, we wouldn't have been able to put the balcony in. But uh, but we did squeeze it in, and um, it's just a you know it has great acoustics, which is not something we really had anything to do with. It just does for whatever reason, and. Um, it, it, it works. Uh, I was standing in the lobby, um, uh, after a, a play had just ended and I was standing out in the lobby and the door burst open. The audience came streaming out and this one woman walked past me and she said, not even to me, she just sort of said it to herself as she walked by. She said, that room loves a play. And I thought, what, you know, I, I could win all the awards in the history of the world and it will not be better than, than that comment. You know, that's, that's what you want. Um, if you're running a theater, you want the audience to, to feel like they're, uh, in the world of the play, you know, I think, and the room does it over and over again. It somehow, um, becomes the world of the play. I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, it's mysterious, but I guess many of the good things in life are. So <laughs> anyway, that's, that's a little bit about the, about the building. Very, very nice feedback to hear from an audience member, just sort of offhand. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah that's, I, I, I love those moments. Uh, please, please reiterate the title of Ian's play one more time for us. It was called 1960, okay. which was the year that the vote took place. Okay, great. Outstanding. Um, I see that uh, you're doing art right now. Yes, we are. Okay. Um, talk about that. Oh, sure. Um, well, um, first of all, it's a, it's a damn good play. Um, and, uh, I was listening to it the other night. I didn't direct this one. We hired a, a gentleman named Ken Hinton who teaches at North Carolina Central, uh, one of the historically black colleges here or university in this case in, um, in the triangle. And he's done a lot of stuff with us over the years uh, in, in other capacities. And he is a director. He runs his own company called the Agape theater project. Um, but uh, Ken is working with, an, uh, 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 you know, three African-American actors who are three of the best actors in the triangle and, and certainly three of the best we uh, have access to. Uh, and uh, they're, they're just tailor made for these roles and so honestly when the time came to do the play they were the three that i thought of and i wasn't thinking of it like 
you know, what does this do to the play or anything? I, I, or, uh, you know, how does this speak to the current moment or anything like that? I was just thinking, I want to see these three guys together on stage in something. And when art came to mind, you know, it, it just fit like a glove. You know, there was no way that, that we weren't going to do it at that point. Um, and, uh, and it's turned out well, you know, it's, uh, it's an, it's, it's, it's an interesting play. There's a, there's a moment in it, uh, Near the end, when one of the characters says it's 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 sad that we have reached a point where we can't even understand each other anymore, and and I thought, is, did she write this yesterday? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it seems so relevant right now. The the play does, uh, and yet it's a comedy, and the audience is laughing, you know, a lot, uh, and and I think that's something that maybe people need a little bit right now as well. Indeed. Uh, tell us uh, about the actual play. Tell, tell the audience about the, sure. the story, the plot line. Sure. Uh, the, the writer is Yasmina Reza, who is a French writer. Um, it was a, a, adapted uh, by Christopher Hampton into the English language. Uh, it's about three middle-aged men uh, who were friends of long standing. Um, and they occupy kind of roles in each other's lives. You know, there's the there's the sort of middle brow one. Um, there's the kind of um, not very. It isn't that he's not bright, but he's a, he's a bit of a coward. He kind of goes along with whatever anybody else says. And then there's the intellectual. You know, those three and and the the middle brow guy uh, decides that the as as the play begins to buy a a hugely expensive abstract painting um, that really looks a whole lot like just a white canvas. You know, he insists that there's more to it than that, but, um, but it looks pretty much like a white canvas. And, and so it, it, and, and to their astonishment, to the three of them's astonishment, this really creates turmoil in their relationship and the relationship of all three of them. Um, And, and so I think it's about um, how, how we play roles um, and, and what it takes to, to shed those roles, um, and, and, and is it worth it? You know, is it worth, um, uh, that turmoil to, to shed those roles or would it be better just to hang on to them? And, and I don't know. I mean, I don't think the play really comes down on one side or the other, um, on that, but it certainly makes me think, uh, uh it, it's an extraordinary work of art, really. It, it really is, uh, it is. Uh, she, for the audience sake, she also wrote a play that was turned into a movie called God of Carnage. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's something about her writing to me that just floats. Yeah. And I remember, uh, I, I've taken two acting classes in my life. I took them to have, as a writer, to have empathy for the actor to, Make sure that what I'm asking them to do up there, you know, uh, short of crossing deserts is possible. Um, And it was a play called Lifetimes Three. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was done uh, in New York on Broadway with Helen Hunt and John Tutoro. I think Gambone did it in London. Michael Gambone, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. That I didn't know. I think that's right. But it's the story of like three different it's one scenario told three different ways with almost exactly the same dialogue, yeah. but just shifts in tone and intention. And um, 
that really, to me, stood out because I thought, and and everything that I've read or seen by her, nobody, everybody's a little bit of a hero and everybody's a little bit of a villain at the same time. And I, that's just a great, in my opinion, yeah. formula for creating three-dimensional interesting characters. You can thank Shakespeare for that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, right. There's a great, a great book called Shakespeare and the Creation of the Human Being uh, by Harold Bloom that posits the idea that Shakespeare was the first writer to, to create non-stock characters, characters that didn't just fit into one slot and, and stay there throughout the play. So, yeah, but yeah, yeah, Yasmina Reza does that well. Um, and um, uh, Art and God, God of Carnage are two really good examples of it. It's painful, you know, it's painful to, because we all think of ourselves as being one thing, but we're not. We all we all have different aspects of ourselves, um, and and that's where um, you know I think uh, Sean uh, fairness comes into play. People are often ask me what is, what is the one thing you value most in a work of art, and I always say fairness. You know, I I'm not interested in propaganda. I'm not interested in telling a story that people want me to tell uh, or that will make people happy. Uh, I'm interested in um, does does the play look at the world fairly and give voice? One of the writers I really love uh, is David Hare, um, who's a, a little to the left of Mao tongue, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to politics, if you read any of his essays or personal diaries or any of that stuff. But then he writes these plays with these great conservative characters in them. Um, and, and, you know, with just, it just blows everybody else away. It's kind of like Shaw did with uh, Major Barbara, you know, with that uh, shot of or whatever the guy's name was, uh, uh, who, who, who comes in at the end of the play and just destroys all of Barbara's arguments, you know. And I'm like, that's that's what the world is. You know, the world, if it was easy, if you could just say those people over there with the red hats, those are the good guys. And those people with the blue hats, those are the bad guys or vice versa. You know, that would be an easy thing, you know, but that's not what the world is. And and I think uh, Yasmina Reza is one of the primary um it's very subtle, you know. Her work is very subtle, but but she really uh, understands that maybe better than than most writers today. Oh, I I concur. And uh, by the way, Christopher Hampton, who is a translator, is dynamite. Yeah, yeah. He really he he knows how to capture her work and and translate it properly to where everything that she's saying uh, that she's asking us to think. Uh, that she's asking us to feel um, yeah. is it's, it's all there. It remains. Uh, nothing ever gets lost in translation. He's, he's just dynamite. Right? He's, uh, he's also working with Florian Zeller uh, now um, who did the, the father and uh, yes. the son. And there are a bunch of different plays with titles of that nature that, that he has uh, translated as well. So he's, he's, he's good with those writers and he's good with the French language too. Yeah. He's, he's something else. Um, yeah, the father was great. I don't know if you saw it here, but it was dynamite with uh, Frank Franklin Jello. Was he? Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. And, and it was just the way it was done. I don't want to give anything away about that play because it's just so yeah. brilliant and beautiful. And then um, Anthony Hopkins, there, there he is again in our conversation. Uh, yeah, won yeah, the yeah. Oscar for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen the movie, but the, what let's they just did. Talk about, let's just talk about Anthony Hopkins the whole time. Uh, I think <laughs> That could fill up at least an hour, right? 
The first play I ever directed uh, uh, that wasn't, you know, me and my brothers in our basement was um, was The Lion in Winter, you know, and that was Hopkins' first film role, I think, uh, mm-hmm. playing uh, maybe – which one did he play, Jeffrey? I can't remember. But, uh, um, but yeah, he was a, a baby at the time. But uh. So it'll be Sean and Jerome and the Anthony Hopkins show. <laughs> I like we'll it. We'll Anthony Hopkins the entire time. Let's do it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, what's your criterion for selecting your material? What do you, what do you, what is it, what has to be there? Um, well, the, I, I mentioned uh, that idea of fairness, um, you know, um, is something that I value greatly. And, uh, you know, frankly, I, I think that the role of an artistic director, um, you know, they don't call them, um, um, managing directors or, presidents or, you know, uh, they call them artistic directors. And so I, I think the reason for that is that, that my role uh, in the role of an artistic director is, is the same role as an artist, really. It's just a different way of creating art. Um, and, and so honestly, I read and I see as much as I can. Um, and, uh, and then uh, if something moves me, um, then I trust that that it will move the audience as well. Um, and, uh, of course, there are other considerations. You know, uh, I, I wouldn't do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf if I didn't have a Martha, you know, uh, or, ha- you know, have reasonable expectation of getting one. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't do Lear without a Lear, you know, uh, in mind, at least. And sometimes you, you have an actor in mind and they can't do it or they won't do it or they're av- not available to do it and you end up scrounging. But I think you, you know, I think you have to, um, you have to love the play first. You have to love it enough to spend 18 months or so of your life working on it. Um, and then you have to, um, you know, make sure that it's within the possibility uh, um, of your company's uh, resources to do. And, and that almost always has to do with picking up the right director. Um, because as we talked about with the Peter Hall, Peter Schaffer moment, uh, any good director uh, can, can take something difficult and, and make it um, uh, dramatic and interesting without um, massive resources, which we, we honestly don't have as a small company. You know, we have, we have decent resources, but we don't have massive resources. And so throwing money at something is never uh, an answer. It's, and, and, you know, frankly, it works. Um, one of the actors here in town told me recently that uh, actually, no, it was a guy from New York that we bring in a lot to do shows. He's a really brilliant actor uh, uh, named Brian Linden. And he told me um, that every time he came here to do a play, he felt like he was coming to do something important. Um, and I, I think that's that's important to actors, you know, a- actors, uh, you know, yeah, if you pay them enough money, they'll do the commercials or they'll do, you know, an episode of a sitcom or what. But that's not what what artists want to do. What artists want to do is is something important. Um, and so we have always tried to make sure that the plays we're doing are important 
um, for for that moment in time. And, and sometimes you don't know why. Like, I didn't know why art was important to do. Um, and, and maybe it's self-aggrandizing, but I was sitting there the other night listening to the play, and I heard that line, and I went, okay, uh, now I know why I wanted to do this. You know, now I know why this was the right play at the right moment. Um, and um, so, I, so I think, uh, you know, if you if you are willing to trust yourself and, and if you're willing to do the work, you know, um, one more brief uh, story, a uh, second or third year uh, of a company here in town that had sent, has since folded the artistic director called me one day and said, um, I was just wondering if you had had any ideas for plays that I could do this year. This was, I think, in the guy's second season. And I wanted to go, dude, if you don't have them lined up on the runway for for 10 years, you should forget it. Uh, you know, I mean, I could I could put, put 10 seasons together right now, and I, 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 none of them would ultimately come true. But there, there are that many plays that I want to do right now um, because I've read them, I've seen them, um, I've read about them. Um, Sean, there are two uh, really great resources for that uh, that I want to recommend to people if anybody's still listening to me jabbering on at this point uh, uh, on the podcast. Uh, one is uh, American Theatre Magazine, which most uh, most people know about. And the other one is Theater Record, um, which is uh, published, or at least it was published in England. Uh, I think they've now gone to an all-digital format. But essentially, they collect every review of every play done in London over a fortnight, over two, a two-week period, uh, and they compile them together. And so, you you know, you open the magazine, and it's like um, – um, you know, Tom Stoppard's Leopoldstadt, uh, you know, um, and then there are 10 reviews of it, you know, and you read, you can, I mean, you don't read them all, of course, but, but you get a pretty good idea of what the play's about and, and whether it's working as a piece of literature. And so the next time you're, uh, at a, the drama bookshop or if you're in London at the in National Theatre's bookstore or something like that or just online, um, you know, you, you might have a, now you've got a list of plays you want to buy and read for yourself or, or just sit there in the bookstore and read them if you, if you can't afford to buy them. Um, and so those two resources, American Theatre and Theatre Record are, are critical uh, resources, I think, for any artistic director, um, especially given that so much of what uh, gets done today in New York starts out in London. You know, uh, it's just the truth of it. I, I I think it's because their their public subsidy for the arts is so much greater than ours. Um, but they just have they just have about eight or nine great great publicly subsidized theaters, and and almost all of them do new work. You know, from the the tiny uh, you know uh, Bush theater uh, to the national and everything in between you know they all do new works now which means there are playwrights out there that that understand that they have a place to for their work to be done if they if they do it you know which was not true um for most of uh well really most of the first half of the 20th century and and then um well, I could I could launch now into a big story about uh, how that came about, but I don't want to bore you more with that. But suffice to say, uh, in my lifetime, it has become possible for a playwright like yourself to know that if you write a good enough play, there is someone to do it uh, in England. And I don't know if it's true here so much. You know, I, I hope it is, but I, I certainly don't see it to the degree that I see um, in England. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can I make, uh, uh, by the way, you're, you're not boring me at all. I'm actually really fascinated by the interview. But can I digress a little and make a recommendation for something in, in London right now? Yes. Please. That I love right now. My husband, David and I flew there literally like we got back here literally just before the shutdown of, of all theater, uh, uh-huh. for, for COVID. But when we were there, we saw this great new musical called Anne Juliet. Yeah. And have you heard of it? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, still on the West End, I think, or it is. They just, they just, uh, reopened it. Yeah. And it's the story of what happens since we're talking about Shakespeare, uh, to Juliet after like, say she doesn't die. Say she decides I've only known this guy for like a weekend and I, I want to live and I want to go see what's occurring in the world. And yeah. it's a, I know everyone hates these, but it's a jukebox musical and it is dynamite. I remember I was like really kind of sitting in my seat like yeah go ahead and impress me by the end of the first act i was you know crying and standing ovation and all that just that's fabulous anybody who goes to london you should see that i believe it won like uh like a shit ton of olivier's too so yeah. It's, yeah. it's 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 great that's fabulous it is um what are some of the challenges that uh, burning coal theater as a regional theater company face over larger theater companies and ensembles Oh, well, um, you know, I, I think that we have a lot of uh, competition, um, and I don't think any of it is the other theaters, um, frankly. My my wife uh, is fond of an old saying uh, uh, that is said, uh, the best place to build a shoe store is across the street from a shoe store. Um, and, uh, and so I, I don't think of the other theaters in this area as, as competition, um, I, I think there is competition, though. I think the the professional hockey team down the road is competition. The college basketball team, um, you know, the uh, movie complexes all all over town, um, um, and uh, restaurants, and you know, uh, television and uh, Netflix and stuff like that. Um, uh, the biggest. Uh, worry that I have, uh, honestly, is something that's a bit esoteric and um, maybe a little um, of, of a broad idea that may not fit into quite into your question. But I'm concerned about, um, how can I put this delicately, stupidity. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people uh, out there making money off of dumb right now. Um, and um uh, you know, you see it in, um, I don't know, I heard recently that the, the, of the 10 most watched television programs last year, like eight of them were f- football games. Um, and I love football games. You know, I love watching all that stuff, but, but in moderation. And I think we've gone way, way past, uh, moderation where, uh, sports is concerned in our country. 
Um, there's a line in a play where somebody says, um, at least we don't put sports on our front pages. And the other person says, we do put them on our front pages. We just turn it around and call it the back page. <laughs> That's what everybody reads. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, the, of course, everybody needs some outlet, you know, but, but we, uh, we drink too much. Um, we take too many drugs. Um, we dishonor uh, education uh, instead of honoring it. Uh, you can't turn on the television without hear- or the radio without hearing somebody say, well, I'm no brain surgeon or I'm no math major, you know, as, as if that were some kind of d- diminishing comment, uh, uh, you know, about those people. Um, what they're really saying is, but I have real intelligence and, 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 and I just don't think that idea serves um, our community. And I think we're seeing it in big ways right now. Um, and, and so you have to ask yourself, um, uh, who is benefiting from that? Um, you know, we, it, it just, I'm, I, I could go on forever, but uh, we live in a very um, sort of militarized society um, where um, this idea of uh, nationalism is, um, it seems to, to be taking a greater and greater uh, chunk of our focus and, and uh, attention. Um, and, and for a long time, there was a, a battle going on there, but it seems like both sides of the political spectrum have given into that idea these days. Uh, and um, there are very few people out there uh, speaking against it, you know, saying, why the hell do, do we need to spend 60% of every dollar we give to the government in taxes on, on one of the 800 military bases we have around the world? Why do we need, how does that help me in any way? Uh, if I give a dollar to the government, I should get a dollar's worth of benefit or close to it at least. And um, and there's nobody in the mainstream talking about that. And I especially include our theaters. Our theaters are just sitting mum on this topic um, and have done for for, you know, the last 20 or 25 years. Um, we're not writing the plays we used to write and telling the stories we used to tell uh, at all. And maybe it's because we haven't had a Vietnam. You know, we've we've had these sort of uh, boutique wars like Iraq, you know, where only a, a tiny fragment of society is involved with it. But in fact, we're all involved with it because our tax dollars are going there. Um, I'll shut up after this one more comment. Uh, there was a, a, a the, during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the fact was uh, generated that uh, $2 trillion had been spent over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. And, um, and I got out my little calculator and it turns out that $2 trillion over 20 years comes out to $230 million a day of our tax money that was being spent. $230 million a day was spent in Afghanistan. Now, what could that do for our society? Um, for our infrastructure. You know, we talk about the bridge that collapsed in Pittsburgh. Well, maybe if we hadn't squandered that money for the last 20 years, um, we, you know, we would uh, not have had to worry about that, uh, right? Uh, uh, and, and on and on. I mean, I could go on all day with these things, but but basically I think our biggest um, competition is from people who would uh, enrich themselves 
by peddling mediocrity and uh, the lack of, um, uh, you know, um, dis- dis- dishonoring uh, the idea of education, of reading, of, of uh, you know, books and, um, you know, things that, that elevate the soul as opposed to drag them down into the, the muck. So that's my, there's my sermon, end of sermon, uh, <laughs> pass the plate around now. <clears throat> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions facing theater in North Carolina? Uh, do you mean from, uh, from people outside uh, North Carolina? Um, right. What do, you, what do you think people outside think versus what's actually occurring? Well, I can tell you... Um, that we have never received a, a cent uh, from the National Endowment from the, for the Arts uh, in our 25-year history, uh, despite multiple grant efforts. Um, um, and when you look at the list of where the money's going, it's always New York, New York, Chicago, New York, New York, Boston, New York, San Francisco, L.A., New York, New York, um, Seattle, um, and then occasionally they'll drop in, uh, Atlanta or Miami or, you know, Houston, uh, Dallas, maybe, um, you know, in other words, the giant metropolitan areas in the South, but, um, but it's usually one and done, uh, on those things. Uh, and, and it seems to me that, um, I'm just going to be on my far left progressive, uh, soapbox for one more minute that, um, if this really were the National Endowment for the Arts, then they would be supporting the arts, not the artists, right? The, what matters is the, the people uh, in this country, uh, and the National Endowment for the Arts should be supporting the, the populations in this country who need it. Um, and, and there is no region of the country that is more in need of um, art and, the, you know, those sort of elevated ideas uh, than the southeastern United States. You know, simple. And yet that's not the, the policy of the NEA. The policy is, uh, you know, who's on our board of directors and how can we help ourselves by helping them. Uh, and and I, I'm fed up with it, to be honest with you. Uh, I find it uh, extremely um, antithetical to, to what they claim to be their mission. Uh, and, you know, so, so one idea uh, that I think is um, misguided about North Carolina is that uh, that it matters a damn how good our theaters are. What what matters is that there are people here who need this service. And uh, and while, of course, we're not going to do a production as good as something the Guthrie might do with their 30 or $40 million budget, but we might do the best production somebody living here has ever seen, and we might change their lives, and that's what they ought to be funding. Um, so I don't know if that quite answers the question about misconceptions, but I'm going to let it ride. <laughs> that answers it beautifully. I had no idea. And that's, that feels criminal to me. It really mm-hmm. does. I, I, I didn't know. And well, I'm um, not saying not, nobody in North Carolina has gotten grants, but we haven't. And, and I don't know anybody uh, who has, you know, uh, honestly. Yeah. Still, that's terrible. Yeah. Um, how has Burning Coal Theater Company dealt with COVID-19? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, um, cautiously, I hope um, um, we we had to cancel one production. It was scheduled to open the first week of April in 2020, 
and uh, and we did cancel it. We committed to the cast that we would bring it back as soon as we felt like it was safe to have five actors in a room rehearsing together. Um, and uh, we will. Uh, that was a play called Silent Sky by Lauren Gunderson. Uh, but but since then, we have managed to do everything that we committed to do. Um, we changed some titles. Um, we were supposed to do 5th of July uh, in the 2021 season, the Lanford Wilson play. Uh, we swapped it out for a one-person show. I don't know if we'll ever bring it back. We had, had done Tally's Folly the previous year, and I wanted to do the whole Tally trilogy in three consecutive seasons. Um, and I don't know now since, you know, we've lost that sort of momentum. I, I'm not sure that we'll ever come back with that, although I love that play. And I, I hate to give it up so much. But um, but right now, getting, you know, however many, 10 or 12 people in a room to rehearse a play like that just doesn't feel um you know, smart or safe or uh, conscientious. So, so we've tried to do that. And we've also tried to be creative about things. Um, one of our guys, our master electrician here uh, came up with this weird little device. It costs, uh, maybe $200, I think, but it allows you to broadcast up to, I think it was up to eight, 800 feet uh, on an, an unclaimed FM radio dial uh, number, you know. Um, and so you, uh, we were able to do a play uh, in our parking lot with the audience sitting in their cars, listening on their radio stations, you know, um, or their phone. You could dial in on your phone, too because not everybody has radios in their cars anymore. Um, but um, but we were able to do the play out in the parking lot, but we also had some of it inside the theater. We have these big windows on that side of the building, and so you could see this sort of two-dimensional puppetry going on inside, and, and the actors were mic'd, and they were out outside and moving around in the trees and stuff, you know. And so um, and we were able to do that because Barry Jacob, our master electrician, uh, found this device that allowed allowed you to do that it's like a couple of hundred bucks and and uh it, it, you know as long as you've got body mics on the, we had in this case two actors you know it was pretty inexpensive to do and and people came you know we we filled the parking lot for the for the show um we've done a, about three or four one person shows uh, since then which are a lot obviously a lot safer to rehearse um and um and and then when we've not done one person shows, we've done two or three uh, character plays. Um, uh, Lauren Gunderson's "I and You," um, or um, Ethel Fugard's "The Road to Mecca," or Art, um, which we're doing right now. So okay. just just try, oh, and we did an outdoor show. We did a production of Evita last uh, June uh, that we did outdoors in a park in Raleigh, and that um, that. Turned out to be safe. You know, the audience felt much safer there, uh, you know, watching outdoors. Wow. So, like, like a live drive in of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have smart people working with you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially in the tech end where I, which is over my head, uh, you know. Yeah. I I hear you. Um, Okay. Before we wrap up, do you want to do a speed round? Oh, sure. Okay. What's your favorite play? I have two. Can I give you two? You can. One is The Road to Mecca by Ethel Fugard, which I just directed, and the other is um, The Weir uh, by Connor McPherson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Favorite musical? 
You could do two of that too if you want. I, I love Man of La Mancha. Uh, I could uh, I'll weep like a stuck pig whenever I watch that that play every time. Well, that's 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 a new one for the speed round. Uh, favorite one person show. Oh, I did it myself. Uh, I don't give myself many roles here at the theater. I think I've only given myself three in all the time I've been running the theater. But there's a, a McPherson play, Connor McPherson, called St. Nicholas, uh, about a theater critic and a coven of vampires. And that is one beautiful piece of writing, man. That is, if you've never read it, uh, read St. Nicholas. It'll, you're talking about weeping. Uh, that is that is such a great piece of theater. <clears throat> it, it's by McPherson? Yeah, Connor McPherson. Yeah, okay. it's one of his early plays before he started writing. You know, he, basically all of his stuff early on was one one person or or like uh, in the case of this Lime Tree Bower, three monologues happening simultaneously um, or consecutively, I guess I should say. Wow. Yeah, he did a lot of that early on. Cool. Uh, so – why don't, before we wrap up, why don't you give our audience your social media information so they can keep up with uh, you and your many endeavors? Certainly. Um, our website is burningcold.org, um, which is uh, the main uh, place to go for information. We're also on in- Instagram, um, and we're on um we don't do a whole lot of Twitter, honestly, but um, we do have a YouTube channel. Um, and we now have a TikTok channel, which I haven't even looked at yet. Uh, but we have some people under the age of 30 that are making <laughs> sure those, uh, right. those things uh, function properly. Um, and so it's, uh, I think, um, Twitter is Burning Coal TC for Theater Company. And uh, Instagram is, um, God, I'm not going to be able to read it, uh, but I know, I know it's there. I think it's BCT. One, two, one, four, maybe. I don't know. That's, I'm not sure that's right. You can find us on Instagram, though, if you just Google Burning Coal Theater or search for Burning Coal Theater. Um, and then TikTok is Burning Coal Theater, uh, R-E, uh, rather than E-R. Wow. Very cool. TikTok. I think you're the first. Actually, no, I had I interviewed somebody for my last series at two places who actually cast and brought in people for like a a Zoom show that they were doing sure. off of off of TikTok. TikTok, of course, both of those people were like under twenty five. Yeah, which I, I am if you multiply me by three. Uh, um, uh, also, we do a podcast a series called Into the Fire, which is available on um, Podbean and uh, also a couple of those other uh, platforms where you can get podcasts. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, quite nice. Uh, we've had some really interesting people on there. Is it on your website as well? Yeah, it is. It sure okay. is. I thought so. I thought I, I saw that there. Um this has been so cool. I have to show you something and I'll explain it to the people in who can't see it, but this is the page of my script yeah. with all of the notes that I've taken from our conversation <laughs> and all the cool things that I have, have learned. And, um, I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed because it was just so much cool information and, uh, and, and I appreciate you bringing it to us. And I appreciate you bringing um, the point of view of a theater in North Carolina and, and, and your, and, and your own theater, which is 
done so much wonderful work. And, and I just want to thank you so much, Jerome, for, sure. for being a guest uh, on the podcast. You have been amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all been interesting, and that's the most important part when you talk good. about yourself. I always Very say, I, if somebody talks a lot, if they're interesting and funny, then go nuts. <laughs> well, okay have, have a great day thank you thanks for having me well folks the 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bows have been taken so it's time to lower the curtain once again a big thanks to artistic director jerome davis of burning coal theater company what a great conversation you can find more episodes of your program is your ticket on the broadway podcast network who has honored me with a place on their incredible theater podcast platform Broadway Podcast Network is all about creating an engaging, immersive, user-friendly experience where theater stories of all kinds can be easily found, shared, and enjoyed. Please visit them on my landing page at bpn.fm slash ypiyt. Again, that's bpn.fm slash ypiyt. Your program is your ticket is also on Facebook at facebook.com. Your program is your ticket. I'm on Twitter at at program ticket. Instagram at your program is your ticket. YouTube at your program is your ticket, iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Pocket Casts, Deezer, TuneIn, Listen Notes, and the UK-based theater platform Thespi. FYI, I appreciate all good ratings, reviews, and subscriptions. Folks, take a little time to visit theater websites and see what they have to offer. Watch their content, give them all great ratings and reviews, and most importantly, donate, donate, donate. As always... Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, theater is for everyone. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.